You're listening to In The Company, a podcast about humanising work and designing better working lives. Each episode is curated to provoke you to think more deeply about things that matter in your career and life and how to build your toolkit for how to thrive as a human in business today. We explore how we work from the inside out. I'm Kylie Lewis, and it's great to be in your company. Welcome. Today, we're in the company of Justin Dry, co-founder of the online wine club, Vino Mofo. In 2007, Justin, along with his brother-in-law, Andre, originally started their business as Quaff, an online wine community where members rated and reviewed wines. But after several years of trying to make it a viable business, Justin and Andre pivoted to become a wine deal site, and so Vino Mofo was born in 2011. Today, we're talking with Justin about the journey and the role innovation has played in taking an idea, executing it, learning, pivoting, and the importance of evolving in small business. Welcome, Justin. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, We're going to jump into the Vino Mofo story in just a tick. But before we do that, I'd really like to know a little bit about little Justin and maybe what he liked doing as a a young boy and if there was any kind of entrepreneurial happenings way back then. Uh, Yes, there was. Um, Funnily enough, I actually started my first business when I was like 10 and it was pretty basic, but it was like a lawn mowing and car washing business. I did like a neighborhood like um, door knock and I actually built up to a reasonable size. I actually employed someone when I was like 10 or 11 and that was my cousin and he'll be forever known as Lazy Ben because he was not that <laughs> not that interested in the work. He was more interested in the lollies and the, at the shops um, and spending the money that we're earning than actually doing the work. But, you know, we're still close. I've forgiven him, but it was a good lesson in um, employing the right people early. But um, And, yeah, then it continued to – I did lots of other businesses Growing up, I was more interested in um, starting things than like being the hard sales guy. That's not me, but creating businesses was always awesome. And the next kind of main one that I did was a um, Christmas tree business, which I was happy to hear like much later that one of my kind of like heroes when I was growing up was uh, Richard Branson and he did the same business and I was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> it's got a few more billion dollars to go but it's still it's quite <laughs> inspiring that to hear that he went through that same kind of journey. But um, And that was when I was about 14, I think, and I did, um, I sat on a corner of a really busy intersection and I bought um, a whole bunch of Christmas trees from a Christmas tree farm. I got my dad to borrow a, a car and pay for the Christmas trees. We went and picked them up sat on this corner and I think it's pretty common now to sell, see Christmas trees at petrol stations and stuff, but it wasn't then. And, um, and I sold out in like half a day. I was expecting to be out in the sun all weekend and I sold out in half a day and I was like, I was so overconfident. I think that I called the Christmas tree place and I said, how many trees have you got left? And they said, oh, I don't know, 40 or something. And I said, well, if you drop them down to me today, I'll take them all. And he was like, okay, great. And so um, he he decided to do that, and the the trees that rocked up, my God, you've never seen forty poor excuses of Christmas trees in your life. It had like two branches and like you know three little bits of green, and I was like, oh my God, um, what have I done here? And I'd already paid, so I was in trouble. But um, I sold about half of them, and so I spent the next three days trying to sell these awful Christmas trees, and um, ended up putting all my money back into it to buy the the like the last forty, and I think I was left with about fifteen, and that was my profit. So I went home with my profit of 15 Christmas trees and no money. Um, so it's another kind of lesson in stock management, I guess, or something, you know, at least have a look at what you're going to sell before you uh, commit to buying it. And then, you know, story continues, uh, started other businesses when I was like 23 and 28 and then got, got back into the wine industry in my kind of, I think that would have been early 30s. And I, I'd studied wine at uni. I'd, my ancestors planted some of the first uh, Shiraz vines in the Brossa Valley I had uncles that were in the space who encouraged me, you know, at Christmas events and family events and that type of stuff to kind of try different wines. So it was kind of, I was always kind of around wine and I was always interested in business. So it was kind of just, it was a foregone conclusion really that I was going to combine the two at some point. I I was hoping not to have the first four years be so bloody tough, but um, after that we finally got the Vino Mofo and it kind of worked. So I'm I'm pretty happy with the overall result. (laughs) Yeah, we'll jump into that in just a sec. So did you grow up in a fairly entrepreneurial family then? Uh, yeah, I think um, my dad had his own um, businesses. Um, 
Some were more successful than others. You know, I, I, I witnessed the highs and lows of that stuff. Um, so I guess I probably had experience around that and I guess seeing failure and then seeing success and seeing failure and success, I kind of got used to it and I saw what an impact it could have on a family. So it was, um, I'm not sure if I was inspired or scared shitless, to be honest. But it didn't put you off. No, well, I, I, no, I think it's just in my DNA. I think uh, I didn't really have a choice. I, I can't work for people. <laughs> it's just, it's just, I can't, I tried. Um, and I could do it for a while, but then eventually I, um, I don't know, I don't like being told what to do, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I, I, like, I can do it for a little bit, but it's just not, it doesn't sit well with me. Okay. So one of the things I always ask all my guests at the beginning of the podcast is three things that they believe in. So yep. what might be three of yours? Three things that I believe in. Um, I believe in family, number one. We're a very, uh, you know, close family and um, I get a tremendous amount of um, joy out of my family and I think it's incredibly important and my family extends beyond my immediate family. Obviously, it extends to my friends as well. Um, so I think family is really important. I really believe in that. I also believe in growth as a human and I think it's really important that we keep growing um, and, you know, facing our fears and stepping outside the circle of, you know, being comfortable. I think all the, not all of them but a lot of the great things that I feel like um, I've achieved in my life have been by facing that fear and growing past it um, and all the fun stuff's on the other side of that too. It's really interesting because public speaking or getting in front of a camera or taking a massive risk in business these are all the things that I now look back on and have built me and, and now bring me the most joy. So probably the growth, so family growth. And then I think the third one would be, I think everything comes down to people. You know, as founders, you start a business and it's two of you and then if it's a success, <laughs> the, the team starts growing. And, um, you know, you get to 10 people, you still have an influence and then you get to 50 people and your influence is not direct anymore. Um, and you really start relying on the people within your team to live and breathe the culture and uh, live and breathe the mission and vision and values of the of the organisation. And I think over the journey, I've made heaps of mistakes around people, and I've also done a lot of good things in this in the same space. But I keep you know learning and getting better. But in the end, I think business is always about the people you have. Mm. So, what might have been some of the biggest mistakes that you made in that field? Um, I think probably hiring the wrong people um, for certain roles, um, not having going against my gut sometimes. You know, we've got much better processes. <laughs> like, you know, back in, back in the day, we're like, okay, oh, you're a good coder. Yeah, great, you're hired. And that was about the extent of it. Whereas, you know, we needed someone, they were there, they seemed like a decent person. And we're like, yeah, great, you're hired. Um, whereas now, you know, as we made more mistakes, you know, there's not heaps of them, but we made some mistakes along the way. And those mistakes were generally around people. And I think, um, you know, sometimes we hide too quickly. It's a, real, it's a really fine balance when you've got a fast growth company. You need to hire fast enough to not slow it down too much, but slow enough not to make stupid mistakes. And it's like that real, it's a really fine line. <laughs> and I think what we've done to get better at that is improved our processes. We've got better people involved in that process. It's much more thorough. But then on the, on the same token is you also shouldn't be going against your gut in that because, you know, you can get the process right, but sometimes, you know, we've, People have flown through those processes and seem like the absolute perfect person in every other way. And then I've had a meeting with them, which is always a step that Andre and I do to get to know the people before they come in. And sometimes I've had a, you know, that gut feeling and I've gone against it because everything else was a yes. And I thought, no, 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 it's just maybe I'm having an off day. But without fail, <laughs> most of, if not all, the mistakes I've ever made has been when I've gone against my gut. <laughs> so it looks good on paper, but doesn't necessarily translate into real life. Yeah, and I, I think you can, um, I'm a very empathetic person and I can feel people and I, I think I can feel their en energy. And I think as I've become older and wiser and more experienced and I've been through more, I've learned to trust my gut more. And, you know, I think when you're younger, you're like, oh, what is that weird feeling? That's just, <laughs> I don't know. Whereas now I'm like, oh, shit, I'm getting a vibe. This is, I get this feeling. I can feel energies really quite easily with people. And so if I've got that coming off someone and it's not the right energy for our business, um, we definitely go with that now. 
Yeah, and I love that part of acknowledging, you know, the older, wiser version of you that is self-aware enough to listen to that and to make it part of your business decision-making process. Yeah, it's, it's very recent. <laughs> it takes a while to trust yourself in those ways. Um, but now, I've, you know, I guess I've, I've gone through enough to have complete faith in that with me. Now, we we did speak this time last year for another podcast, and one of the interesting things that came up actually after we stopped recording was about the about the culture that you you're talking about and how important that is to Vinomofo. And one of the things that you do in your business to get to know each other a little bit more and to have each other understand each other a bit more, can you tell us what that is? I think you're talking because that was a year ago or more, <laughs> but I think that was um, there's this great kind of tool online that you can um, do and it's free as well, um, and it's one of many tools that we use. But one of the tools, the one I was telling you about last year, was um, it's Love Languages, um, and you can just Google it and find the website. And basically, it's a series of questions, and then it gives you an answer as to kind of what your top love languages are. So whether or not it's gifts or whether or not it's quality time or whether it's physical touch or there's there's um, five or six, I think, and um, we get everyone to go through that. And so what that gives us is, you know, what, what makes them feel amazing, you know. So when, and so when you're in a meeting or in a team and you're building out that team and you know what each of the other team members has as a love language, um, you can use that for the benefit of everyone, you know. So if someone likes praise then it's a nice way to kind of make them feel welcome and comfortable and open to give them praise around what they're doing or what they're saying. And similarly, gifts, you know, like, or acts of service. Like, you know, if you, ha- if you drop a little gift on their, on their table it's, and you know it's going to mean something to them, um, you know, Andre and I do that for our team. Um, and for one person, a gift means everything and it's a 10 out of 10 kind of really powerful moment for them. And to other people, gifts are nothing. You know, it, they'd rather the praise. They'd rather an act of service, you know, for you to take something off their plate. So it's knowing those things for each individual is really, really powerful. And so, yeah, that was, I, I remember talking to you about that, yeah. It's um, great in um, relationships too. So, you know, if you, if you know what your partner's love language is, um, it's really powerful. So, you know, if gifts mean nothing to them, you can stop spending the bloody money. Um, and if acts of service mean everything, you better start doing the dishes. <laughs> Now, so there's an innovation win straight off off the bat for me when you talk about, you know, acknowledging that people have different ways that they like to be shown appreciation um, and loved and actually talking about love in the workplace. And, you know, I can see that one of your beliefs is family and that you see your friends as family and you're in business with family. So, you know, that real emotional, strong emotional connection is super important. And the fact that you, you use actually a tool to identify that love language, I think that's a massive innovation win that a lot more business places could definitely benefit from. Yeah, I, I agree. And thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been really powerful. And um, it's been powerful in our personal lives as well as our business lives. So. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So I know people can go online and actually look up the five love languages, I think. Yeah. And they do yeah, actually have a workplace application for it as well. So it's not completely out there. So yeah. should we jump into the Vinomofo story? I mentioned in the intro where it started as one idea, but you've pivoted quite dramatically over the, what, 10 years now that you've, you've been working with Andre? Yes, it's, um, yeah, it was, I think it's about 11 years now. Um, so we started in 2006. We, I came back from South America. I'd been backpacking through South America. I'd sold up some stuff and uh, had ended a long-term relationship or had a long-term relationship ended on me, I should say, <laughs> for all accuracy. Um, and then um, and I was like, oh, I just want to get out of here and go and experience the world. So I sold up um, and landed in Chile in South America and spent the next kind of six to eight months kind of backpacking around South America and Central America and up to Mexico. And so while I was over there, um, I, you know, lots of long trips on buses where I got plenty of time to think and listen to music and trying to kind of plan out my, my next move because I was, I was ready for something new. And um, I hadn't, the last role that I'd been in or last business I was in wasn't in the wine industry. And being in South America and Chile and um, Argentina, there's so great kind of cabernets coming out of Chile and uh, Malbec's coming out of Argentina and the food is amazing. And so I was just starting, I was like, oh, God, I, I really miss wine. I really miss being a part of it. 
And um, at the same time, I was also meeting so many other travelers and, um, and a couple of them were American and they were on this thing called Facebook, which um, back then well, hadn't really hit Australia and it was still invite only. Um, and they uh, invited me to be a part of it, to keep in touch as we were traveling. And so I was like, I reckon this might be pretty big. And uh, <laughs> it, I guess it has been. But it was pretty obvious that the attraction and the growth were just insane. Um, and it was such a good, you know, service and something a little bit different. And so I was playing around with Facebook and then I was like, I miss wine. So I think over my many hours on buses and travelling, I kind of came the idea I wanted to build a Facebook for wine. So that was my idea. I came back to Australia. I was at Christmas with my family and uh, Andre, my, my co-founder and brother-in-law, was at the Christmas, it was actually at his house, and um, we were drinking wine and we were, saying, we were telling each other what we were going to be doing because he was he's an entrepreneur as well and he, he was starting something new on the side. Um, and we quickly realised that we were pretty much creating something very similar. He was, he was creating a site with, for, in the wine space for like customer reviews. Um, he'd started to work in the wine space doing kind of videos and production. So here we were, brothers-in-law, two wine sites about to compete with each other pretty much. <laughs> and so um, after a few bottles of wine, we decided that it'd be a good idea to go into business together despite the fact that we didn't really like each other. <laughs> uh, we, you know, it's married to, you know, it was married to my sister. He's a big personality. I'm a protective brother. You had that family dynamic. But, um, and <laughs> so I don't know why. It was the booze, I think, that kind of got us across the line. Um, so then for the rest, for the last part of that night, we spent it um, in his garage trying to come up with a name of what our combined business would be and that ended up being Quaff. And Quaff, which was misspelt because, one, we couldn't get the normal spelling <laughs> um, as a URL and, two, because we thought it looked cooler with the Q-W-O-F-F. And so the number of times I had to like repeat myself at how you would how you would spell it to people I was chatting to on the phone, like you know, W W for Wendy O double F because it's just not what how you should spell it. But we kind of thought it was cool. Didn't realise that um, the other impacts it would have um, in the business. And uh, yeah, Quaff was born. So I think we launched it a few months later, which would have been two thousand and seven by then. I think two thousand six, two thousand seven. And, uh, yeah, that was like the Facebook for wine with customer reviews. It was about building a community. It was about uh, being a place that we wanted to be a part of. Um, it was based on who we were um, and our kind of idea around wine, which was, you know, um, you know, the no bow ties and BS, which is traditionally associated or was then more so than it is now. I think we've made some great moves. But um, without that kind of intimidation factor, that kind of old school protective crappy thing that the that the industry was known for for so long um so that was our philosophy um build something that we loved and get rid of all the bow ties and bs and see how we could go the first one wasn't very good <laughs> it didn't really work um i think we, we actually we were building an audience of young wine lovers that really did felt quite aligned with what we were trying to achieve and our philosophy around wine but the business model wasn't very good and, um, and the wineries who we were trying to get to sponsor their pages and advertise and that kind of thing, it was so early and social that they just didn't get have their heads around it. And um, to be honest, it was a bad business model um, and, but, a, but a really nice site and a nice community. And it was, but we'd you know, taken something like Facebook and then niched the hell out of it to the wine space and so, you know, it was, it was always going to be hard because you need big numbers for advertising as far as traffic and stuff. So one, just bad business decision, but um, business model, I should say, but in the end built a great audience for us. And then about a year in and we'd earned a grand total of about $30,000, I think. That was before expenses so um, and including wages. So I think we probably didn't take home any money that year, um, which was kind of tough but um, especially because he's married to my sister so when I'm broken the business is broke my sister's broke so the whole family's pretty much done and Christmas is a pretty average from there on in I think um, so that was the first year and then the second year I came back from uh, Christmas I had this big plan great new idea and that was um, I, I whenever I go away on a holiday and I have time on a beach I love the ocean I love islands so and I just chill out my mind goes mad with like working out kind of you know the next kind of phase and the vision and big picture stuff 
And um, I came back and I was like, Andre, I've got this great idea. And he's like, yeah, what is that? <laughs> I was like, um, I want to buy a combi and travel around Australia to visiting all the wine regions and surfing. And he was like, sounds fun, but how the hell are we going to make money out of that? And I was like, yeah, I don't know yet. Um, and, he, and because his uh, background was in video production, he said, why don't we just film it and then we can sell sponsorship? And I was like, sounds like a great idea. Um, let's do that. And so uh, a show called Road to Vino was born. Road to Vino was us buying a combi, taking a camera sound guy with us and traveling around Australia, visiting all the wine regions, meeting all the winemakers and that kind of stuff. And so we went and bought a, a combi that we, the only one we could afford, um, that was, was in the Barossa Valley, which is a cool kind of story because famous wine region. And it was through a friend of a friend and, um, and it was, hadn't been driven for a while and it was sitting in like knee-high grass and uh, in an old lemon orchard. And it's like it should have been a sign that we kind of picked up on like lemon orchard, like lemon car, like lemon orchard, lemon car. We probably should have got it and we didn't. So we said, yeah, we'll take it. <laughs> it, despite the fact, and we had a video which was cool of us like checking it out and Andre was filming me as I opened the side door. You know, in combis, I've got that really big, long, big uh, sliding side door. And so I opened it and it fell off. Like the whole door fell off the car and I was like, we just cacked ourselves and for some reason still thought it was a great business still um, to, uh, to buy this combi for like four or 500 bucks or something. Who needs what. a door? Who needs a yeah, side door? who needs door? a door? Exactly. We'll fix it. The whole idea was... Would fix it up and then take it on this journey. And then so we towed it back to Andre's place, which my sister was really pleased with having a bomb combi in the front yard and uh, went to fix it up. And then I think it was like four or five months later when we'd rub back all the rust, we were like, if we wait until we fix this thing, we're not going to be doing it until 2020, you know. Um, and so we decided to buy another combi, sight unseen, online <laughs> um, for a bit more money but it actually said it moved so we were like, okay cool eventually we're on our way for a winner in a working combi and we went to hunter valley first and that was and that show was so much fun and it was basically just going all right who are all the cool people in the wine industry that we want to get to know um, who are the legends that are you know the famous super famous families and let's get them them on the show because we can only ask you know and see if they want to be a part of it and everyone said yes so all of a sudden we were visiting all the rock stars and all the legends in the industry and building this incredible network of the, our favourite people and to be a part of this show. And we filmed four episodes in The Hunter. We sat down with the Tyrrell, Chris Tyrrell who, um, from Tyrrells and Andrew Thomas from Thomas Wines. And these people are legends, part of legendary businesses or are now were the kind of up-and-coming rock stars and are now super, super rock stars. Um, so... It was such an amazing way to build that network. And, you know, we were sleeping on the couches occasionally. We were having long lunches. We were drinking lots of wine and doing crazy stuff with these people. So, And we kept doing that all over Australia, which meant we were building this incredible network of amazing people in the wine space who were all becoming close friends of ours. And so, you know, when we released the first episode, Wine Australia saw it and called us and said, look, we want to be part of this. We want to sponsor you because no one is speaking about wine in this way and this is the way that the wine space needs to go and no one does it um, digitally like you guys do because we're big into social and digital um, very early um, and so they so they sponsored it and so all of a sudden we were away and we, we started getting enough money to keep doing the show. It wasn't, we weren't going to be able to retire on it but it was enough to keep funding it and live, you know, frugally but survive and um, so that was the next year. So, and we also had Quaff still running in the background and we were leveraging both audiences to build a greater audience while building this amazing network of wine people so you can see a pattern starting to emerge. And then the next year, because Road to Vino was great, but um, I was starting to get interested in um, mobile check-in apps and working out how we could bring that into our space as well. And uh, back in the day when GoWaller and Foursquare had launched, so it's like a mobile check-in app like Facebook does now, but they're the original ones. And so I was like, oh, this is really cool. So on our way to pitch to SA Tourism, I had to pick up Andre on the way and I was like, Andre, there's this like this check-in apps, this GoWaller and Foursquare. I reckon we could do something with this in the wine space. So then we sat down and kind of worked out what would be interesting and uh, we came up with this idea that if uh, we could get this mobile app and our users could go and check in at wineries and in wine regions and set up like trips and based on like varietal tastings or 
you know, regions or, you know, whatever style, then that would be kind of cool. And then when they checked in at a winery, one, you'd go through their social channels, which means it would be great branding for the winery. And two, they'd get a special offer from the winery, as in like a special vintage tasting or, you know, access to wines that aren't seen normally on the air when at Celador, just something kind of cool for the user. And so we got really excited about this. So about half an hour later, when we were heading on the way to um, SA Tourism to pitch for Road to Vino, um, we decided that we'd change the pitch to um, the Great South Australian Wine Adventure, which was our new check-in app. And so we get into a room and they and first we start chatting about it and they're like, what, pitching us for Road to Vino? And we're like, yeah, yeah, but this is, this is really exciting. This is our new project. And um, they love the idea and then like doubled their investment and said, yeah, we're all behind this. Make this the Great South Australian Wine Adventure. We're like, okay, cool. And they said, um, how, how long until you building it? <laughs> it was just an idea that we created that morning um, and we pitched it as if we were like almost all the way through and they gave us a big check and we then hired a developer to start building it and that was the next pivot. Every business was getting better but it was like super, we were super poor, then we were poor, then we were still a bit poor but like surviving and that was the three years and then but the, the other thing that we did is every business that was starting we're getting more revenue, but we're also hiring more people. So Andre and I still had no money. And so my sister still had no money, <laughs> which was um, pretty tough conversations. Uh, but then eventually the, the, the next year was the year that um, I kind of came up with Vino Mofo. And that was because in the, at that stage, the group buying thing, which is how we kind of started, it was a group buying site um, for wine, but in the kind of premium to super premium end. And so the fastest growing company at that stage was a company called Groupon. So it's fast growing in history. And, and so I was like keeping in touch with what was happening in the tech world, which I was interested in, um, tech and business world. And then we're also we're building this amazing network of wine of um, people in the wine industry. And then this amazing audience of young wine lovers. So you've got audience, network, business model. And so I was like, oh, I was, I was getting all excited that we'd kind of come to this point where it might just work. Um, so I pitched it to uh, Andre and he was like, no effing way. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> it's like, we've got like, oh, and I, we started another business as well, like a digital agency because we kept getting asked to do work because we were doing all these innovative things in that space. And, and so we said yes because we just wanted to get more money into the business. <laughs> so we started doing, so we had that. So he said, no effing way because we had like four businesses on the go <laughs> and he was like, we just don't have time. Are you serious? And I was like, yeah, but this one will actually work, like properly work, I think. And it was like, oh, God, um, then had to kind of convince him that we weren't going to be like those typical deal sites, which kind of are the bargain hunting type because um, that wasn't our, that wasn't the wine that we liked. That wasn't our audience. And so we just we worked out a way to stay in the premium to super premium end of the wine space and we launched Finomofo and then that was in 2011. Um, and it just kind of took off and that's the that's all the pre-days for Vino and Vino has been a crazy ride and it's now, you know, we're in three countries. Um, we've got like 130 staff. Um, we've, uh, you know, it's, it's a big team now um, and, a, and a big business and um, pretty exciting. This episode of In The Company is brought to you by the 2017 Small Business Festival, which is run by the Victorian Government in Australia and is designed to help startups and small to medium businesses go from strength to strength. Check out the festival website to find free and affordable events all across Melbourne and regional Victoria throughout the months of August and early September. There's over 500 events, including workshops, webinars, mentoring and podcasts just like this one. Visit festival.business.vic.gov.au to learn, grow and connect. So you, that whole idea of leading with content first and building that audience first to, to make sure that you've got a, you know, a, a viable business to then launch to, that's a, that's a pretty interesting model. Yeah, I think it, it's, a, it's a great model if you um, speed it up a little bit. <laughs> as, as opposed to four years of like working out how to do that. But because um, I think it's super important and you can see it in the way that we're, we're launching in other countries. We go in, do kind of grassroots, ground up community build and go from there because, you know, and that's what we did in Australia and that's what we're doing in um, New Zealand and Singapore and any future, all the future markets will be, Justin, get over there, meet the people you need to meet, build the network, get to know our early adopters love them to death and referral will then come. So that's kind of what we did in Australia and that's what we're doing in the other, other, other markets. 
Um, Australia just took us a little bit longer than I'd probably hope because four years of having no money is not cool. But the overseas markets are already working and it's amazing to see and it's really exciting. And, you know, I, I, we just had an event in Singapore where we had uh, 200 of our mofos along as the, you know, 200 of the early adopters, um, the most engaged 200. And um, it was so, it was just so cool to kind of get to know them all and see who our audience were in this new market and exactly what we would hope and kind of expected, but um, definitely hoped that it would be the young, cool, open to learning more and super passionate about the brand. And it's just, and it's just perfect. It, it, it suits perfectly. You know, you've obviously got the kind of outliers um, as far as kind of age, but it's, it's not about that. It's, it's more about an attitude. And so our brand is all about an attitude to wine and life and food and, you know, all those things. And so I, it's really cool to see like them come together around an attitude and to see what that community looks like. And they're, fucking great bunch of people <laughs> yeah and you can get a sense of the brand values and the kind of community that you're building from the brand name itself yeah yeah absolutely the um if you don't like you know what our names i'm not i'm, I'm not really allowed to swear in this podcast am i <laughs> I, th- I i think we've got an adult audience i think we could probably <laughs> okay, go there <laughs> okay so so just so for anyone who doesn't know vino mofo stands for wine mother <laughs> um i always feel weird saying it <laughs> But um, it's, uh, you know, so if you know that, which most people do, and there's a whole story behind that. It wasn't originally called that. It was a trademark issue. It was a bit of a joke and fun and probably not enough time to go into that one. But it was a good decision in the end. Anyway, so if, you, if you're offended by that, you're not really our people anyway. So it's, it kind of works for us in that way. It's, you know, if you're going to get a bit funny, then you're probably one of the people that we don't want to be part of our community. You're kind of like the, the bow ties and BS and the, the kind of, coffee stuff so it's like it's kind of uh, self-fulfilling I guess. Yeah now innovation has just been one of those buzzwords that's popped up in the industry you know in the startup space in particular and what big businesses are also trying now to foster in their own kind of thinking so that they can keep agile but I can see from your story you've kept innovating over and over and over again till you find something that's worked and and, you know, and then run with it. Do you guys see yourselves as innovators or do you talk about innovation within the business as, as a buzzword or where, um, where does innovation sit, I guess, in your brand and culture? Yeah, I think it's, it's um, one we don't call innovation. It's more of an attitude to, um, to how we do business and being in the early days about being a disruptor and about disrupting what was currently existing. And, um, you know, the only thing that really keeps me up at night these days is becoming big and slow and being disrupted that was disrupted <laughs> so it's a it's a constant thing and a constant push for us as a business and it, we we really do focus a lot on reducing and trying to remove the fear people have around constantly changing and growing uh, as you bring uh, people into your team to help you on that journey you really need to instill it as part of the culture and necessity and in order to remove the fear that people have. Because this is not normal to take these risks. You know, this is not a normal thing to keep looking at how you disrupt yourselves and how you disrupt an industry. And because there's standard ways of doing things and thinking. And if you're going to do that, then you're going to go into one of the big and slow ones. So, you know, you need to keep the attitude even as you grow. And you need to, it needs to be such a big part of the culture so everyone's in on it. Because if you don't, it's a very quick and easy way to slowly die so um, how do you address people's think, fear um, how do you do that how do you attack that directly you have to show it's okay to kind of fail and i know that there's you know failure is one of those buzzwords around these days as well as you know innovation there's there's a whole bunch of words that people use but in reality uh failure is pretty normal and a big part of business and um as you see we failed our way through those four years um and plenty of other things to get to uh, Vino Mofo in the end, which was the success. And when you have Vino Mofo, there's been so many things we've failed at along the way. But, you know, as long as you're, you're looking at it as a lesson that you're learning along the journey to get better, if you repeat the same mistake, then we're going to have some chats. But if you're, if you're making mistakes, then that's absolutely fine. And we need to build that as known within our culture that, you know, Justin and Andre make a heap of mistakes. Look at how they handle those. And so the hardest thing as a leader, if you're not used to this, because you care so much about your business, is to witness 
mistakes being made and reacting <laughs> in the right way to build and instill that culture that you need to be the disruptor, to innovate. And so it's been an interesting journey because, you know, some of the mistakes that we would have already made and so then we would never make again are repeated by new people that are coming to the business. And so I think it's all about then being seen and having an understanding that that is completely okay. Learn from it, let's move on and not be fearful and not see the repercussions that would then stop people from taking risks in the future. So it's really about going, you know what, that's fucking awesome. You're going to learn a lot from this, let's move on. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, if you, you truly got that attitude, which you need to build in to your business, if you truly do have that attitude, you can build a culture of innovation. Mm. So one of the studies that came out a couple of years ago out of uh, the Google HR people division was a study about what creates successful teams at Google. And they studied, I think, 180 teams over two years. And what they found was that the number one factor for a high-performing team at Google was psychological safety, that they could show up and they could take a risk and that they could admit that they didn't know something and not feel embarrassed. Um, And they normalised normalised that risk-taking behaviour by, at the beginning of each of their team meetings, asking each team member what risk did they take this week. Yep. It was an expected yep. norm. Do you have yeah, something yeah, similar like that or like do you talk about risk overtly? We, yeah, we do. Um, we don't kind of necessarily go what is the risk that you're taking this week um, but that's a great idea. Like I hadn't seen that study and I think that's really kind of cool um, because I think um, psychological safety is absolutely the number one thing to an innovative kind of um, disrupting kind of team. Absolutely. Uh we kind of bring it up when we sense we have very open and honest conversations. Like we have a we have a full time person in here who's amazing, named Nadia, um, who is here as kind of like like a coach slash intuitive coach, um, kind of a way to connect people. Um, so it started with Andre and I getting rid of like walls and barriers and having really open, honest human connection and conversations, and then we extended it out to all the team leads. And it's been transformational as far as people recognising the patterns and the walls that they have around it and the fear and the reasons they react in certain ways to then remove that and have really respectful, open conversations. So that's how we handle all of our meetings now. It's all about being empathetic and open and human and real and understanding that no one's perfect and, um, and sensing when people are not aligned and asking the question as to, why they're feeling that way and how do we fix that. And it's, a, it's been an amazing journey to see the impact that that's had not only on the business but people's personal lives and relationships. And um, so I think it's the way we have our conversations and it's the way that we kind of um, think about um, getting the most out of and for each kind of team member and that's so much bigger than just at work, you know. So it sounds to me like you see innovation as something that starts as a personal examination first and foremost. I think, yeah, I think so. I mean, I've, I think it comes from releasing a lot of the fears around, uh, around that, you know, around innovation and around taking risks. And I think you have to kind of start with the individual. And I think that, that you need to build a culture around that that allows those conversations to be had and those people to be supported to work through those things. So, yeah, I think I do, yeah. Yeah, so do you, do you have processes or routines or disciplines or rituals in place for exploring what might be called innovation, but I guess, you know, developments in the business or risks in taking new? Uh, no, <laughs> it's all just expected to, that this is how we run and think all the time. It's, it's part of everything we do. It's not like, oh, let's have our innovation time it's like it needs to be part of every thought process conversation because to stay ahead and be the disruptor and to do interesting things it needs to be just part of your dna within the business and the cultures it can't be oh we're going to allocate this time to be innovative because that's the way big businesses do it and sometimes do it really badly and that's why they eventually just outsource it, which is another whole big conversation. Um, but it's, uh, it's, I mean, I understand it's hard when you've, when you've got this big, slow thing and you need to kind of change it and cut it up and do, you know, it's, it's a big move. But when, as long as it's, you know, for us, it's, it's always been part of our culture and part of our DNA as a business. So it's, a, it's obviously easier for us to maintain that 
But um, you see the challenges as the, as the team grows, but it's just about regular communication, being a part of it, seeing uh, the leaders be open and vulnerable and all those things that make it okay for everyone else to do it. So innovation's not a department. It's not somebody's sole responsibility. It's not, no, okay, let's sit in a room right. and let's go through an innovation process right now. Um, yeah, exactly. So what happens if some, when somebody comes up with a new idea? How does it go from being an idea to being investigated or, in, or executed? So there's an interesting chat that we had um, with, a, with another founder um, a while back. And the way he looked at it is very similar to the way we look at it. It's, there's two kind of uh, decisions. You know, one is irreversible and if it doesn't work, you're dead. <laughs> and the other one is reversible. <laughs> if it doesn't work, you can come back from it. Um, if it's one of those later ones, we're okay with everyone to have a crack at that. If it's an irreversible, we die, then we need to have a big conversation. Once we've worked those two things out um, and it's one that we can come back from, then we come up with the idea and what it looks like. Then we build a team around it. And then it's just go. You know, it's a very simple process. It's like we want to have a look at doing this, like our own delivery or whatever that part is. Um, it's like, all right, let's analyse what the idea is, how we perfectly want to see it, and then let's go. And we set timeframes and deadlines and um, expectations around those uh, agreed as a group. And then they report on them and it's, it's, we, we follow the journey. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just wondering where innovation maybe in the business has failed. Probably when we've gone away from the, the core kind of guiding principles to our business um, and culture, um, I think that's where the failures have come in when we've kind of done things or innovated for the wrong reasons and there hasn't been buy-in and there hasn't been an alignment with who we are as, as a team, as a business, as, as founders. I think it's probably where the innovation has failed because um, we about, I don't know, uh, four or five Years ago, uh, we had a big investor come in and, and take 70% of our company, which was another big business called Catch of the Day, um, which we then a year later bought back. So it was a great journey, like lots of stories, but not enough time to tell them. Love them, but it was um, an interesting journey. And through that part of the journey, when we were part of this bigger group, um, we were coming into a whole bunch of different cultures and a whole bunch of different business philosophies and ways to do things. And I think during that period, we, we did some silly things around thinking that we needed to evolve in a certain way which wasn't aligned with what we kind of believed and what we normally would kind of think do. Um, I think that part of the innovation probably failed us. <laughs> but that were just bad decisions. <laughs> that were just bad decisions. Yeah, or lessons. Like some people don't have the viewpoint that they're not necessarily failures, so they're just lessons. No, and I, I agree completely. And you have to separate the failure from the person. It's like it's got to be that that idea did not work. It's like it's it's part of a, a process of ideas as opposed to a human and connection to that. Um, and if you can let go of that, you have a much happier life. Yeah. How do you keep taking risks? Because I think one thing is when you're starting out in business and you're kind of fresh with enthusiasm and ideas and, you know, you can jump in a combi and, and go around Australia and, you know, it seemed like a good idea. The more you grow your business and the more you do have invested in it, the more there is, I guess, to lose or there's more that's at stake. And also just the older we get, I think the more risk adverse we get. How do you you keep fresh? How do you keep your edge, I guess, as far as innovation goes? For me personally, it comes down to constantly going over the journey and how we've got here and understanding the lessons I've learned and all the best bits coming from the other side of that fear, the other side of that risk, and knowing that every time you do those things, you expand as a human. And same in, in a business, you, you, get, you get bigger and better and more kind of comfortable with those things as you go. Like it's, it's an interesting thing. When, you, when you've got nothing, you risk everything very easily. Um, when you've got something like this business and, you know, 130 people, you don't put it all on black or red anymore. You know, I would have put it on black or red when we started. Now it, it does look different because you're not risking the whole shebang. But um, that's why I talked about before around is this a decision, like is this door if I walk through going to close behind me and we're dead if it doesn't work. Um, so you kind of start thinking in that way a bit. Um, so, yeah, it does change when you've, when you've got more. But it's about building a culture that still does look for all the challenges and, and the disruption while not ever betting the house on one of those two colours. <laughs> 
Absolutely. What what would be some examples of where you had very few resources and that you really had to dig into going, how do we make this happen with, you know, the least amount of resources that we have available? Examples of that over the journey. Um, look, we had, we literally were broke for the first four years. Um, so we, that was just everything. That wasn't like a time. <laughs> that was the whole, that was the whole journey where we were like, um, we had to be very innovative as to how we would afford the groceries next week, let alone, um, you know, actually earn, you know, a decent income. Um, so I think it's been just part of what we've done the whole time um, when you get to a point now. But we, it's funny though because we've wanted to maintain and carry that through um, mm. even when you don't need to. And so uh, with Vino, my face, so for example, um, we're launching into new markets. There's two ways companies generally do it. They go in, blast a whole bunch of cash and buy, try and buy their way into market share or there's the other way where you go and build from grassroots community up and as a business we could do either of them but as a business with our culture and belief system we did the grassroots community up, very little spend, we want to know what's working, be agile, move quickly, change, iterate and build. And that's what, we, that's what we've done in New Zealand, that's what we've done in Singapore, that's what we'll continue to do in every overseas market that we go into. And it's in your DNA, that's how the business was birthed and that's how it's grown up. Yeah, yeah. and sometimes you, you go a slightly different way over the journey and we've made mistakes and you go, oh, God, that wasn't us, what are we doing? We're, we're going away from our core and, it's, and you lose touch with what your gut decision was and the reasoning for it and the belief system and then you go, oh, that was a, that was a silly one and um, I know why I did it. And that's really important and I won't do that again. But, you know, to pretend that we've had a perfect run since Phenomofo was launched is absolute rubbish too. <laughs> You've mentioned a couple of times the word empathy through our interview and the role that that plays internally within the business. What role does empathy play with your customers as well in terms of determining where to go next? Empathy is about what being able to feel and read people um, and I think, you know, it's uh, on the customer side, it's, you know, this is what I'm in new markets doing. I'm like, I'm wanting to understand and know. And I think there's so much that you can sense and feel outside of what someone would say to you or write to you. Um, so I think actually being around them and feeling them is, is really powerful. Um, you know, some people don't want to tell you things if they're going to one, you know, I don't know, be a bit upsetting or um, a bit confrontational. But, you know, most of the time you can feel it if you're open to that type of thing. And, you know, there's some really interesting ways that that can come out. I had a guy in Singapore. He was, a, he was an, um, an older um, local Singaporean guy and he was awesome. He loved his wine. But when he came to say hello, because I, I encouraged everyone when I did my speech, I was like, I want to meet every single one of you. Please come and meet me. Please come and say hello. And so a lot of people did. And, I'm, and I was chatting to him and he was, um, he was really nice. He was really guarded and kind of protective. But I knew there was more. I was like, I know that you want to tell me stuff. I know that you've got things to say. And I ended up just saying it to him. I just said, look, I feel like there's something that you don't want to tell me, but please know that I can handle whatever you want to say. And I was touching him on the arm and I made him feel very comfortable. And he, at the end of it, he's like, blah. <laughs> and he's told me a million things that are amazing for, to know as a business and the challenging points that he's had when dealing with us, or, you know, whatever they were and what he loves and what he doesn't like about what we're doing so far. And it was really, really amazing. We ended up at the end just hugging each other and he went off with a big smile on his face. And so I think being able to read people in that sense is really, really powerful when you get to the truth really quickly if you can make people feel comfortable. And most people want to, but they're just so many people aren't used to being that open and comfortable with that stuff. Um, but when someone opens it up and allows that vulnerability and all that stuff to be open, the other person generally flies right on through. Yeah, so one of the processes in innovation is doing, um, you know, in the field interviews and empathy maps and that's a prime example of exactly doing that and bringing your love languages to play by the end of it, having a bit of a hug with, yeah. with the... <laughs> yeah, now, I, yeah, I'm not sure if this was physical touch, but, <laughs> but, um, but it's just a, it's a connecting thing, isn't it? 
Absolutely. That's why we're here. We're really, I truly believe that the reason why we're here is to connect. And when you can hold space to find a way into connecting with somebody in a really genuine, authentic, patient, vulnerable way, the gifts are there for both of you in terms of the business and in terms of the relationship and the connection and what that person's obviously feeling in return. Justin, I'm mindful of the time and we're coming towards the end of our conversation. What three things would you like people to think about in terms of innovation from your perspective um, as a takeaway from our chat today? Uh, fear is normal. Uh, to to uh, just get it done. Uh, just feel it, but just get it done. Like, it's okay. Just get it done. You're going to be okay. <laughs> and then I think probably most importantly, which is something I've learned more in the last yeah, few years particularly, and it's become stronger and stronger, is everything is people. Like everything is people. So um, I think, you know, it's, it's your customers, it's your team, everything is human and people. And I think the more you understand that, the quicker you understand it, the less mistakes you'll make and the greater you can go. Um, so, yeah, everything's people. That's my third. We've got our 10 by 10 questions to finish off okay. today. You ready to go? 10 questions, yes, 10 seconds. I'm going to hit you oh, up, God. starting with number one. What I like about myself is? Um, my big picture mind and my ability to connect with people. I beat procrastination by? Setting deadlines. A song on my life soundtrack is? Uh, See the World by Gomez is when I travel around South America with it. It means a lot to me. Yeah. The world needs more? Love and connection. A phrase I live by is? Uh, done is better than perfect. <laughs> I love um, that one. Is there another one? Yeah, uh, there's one around um, like growth is on the other side of fear, that type of thing. Something everyone must do is? Treat themselves well. Treat themselves well because like we're all so mean to ourselves in our heads. So I think just treat yourself well. A book that changed me is? Uh, Think and Grow Rich. I read it when I was about 14. It's so outdated now, but wow, it, it was really powerful at the time. Fear and I? Are good friends, <laughs> but I get over my friend pretty quickly. Something that always makes me feel good is? The ocean. I love the ocean. I love surfing. I love boating. I love just swimming in the ocean. And lastly, number 10, my legacy will be? My legacy will be a global wine business that does good for the world and a network of family and friends that knew I love them. Justin, it's been a delight to speak with you today, as I thought it would be. For people who are interested in finding out more about VinoMofo, where can they go? VinoMofo.com, obviously, to uh, check out the site. And on Instagram, I'm Justin Dry. We have a VinoMofo one, which is just VinoMofo. On Twitter, it's Justin L. Dry and obviously VinoMofo as well. And, yeah, Facebook too. We've got it all. Just come and say hello. We're always here. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Justin. Now, my love language is acts of service, so I greatly appreciate this time that you've spent with me today. Awesome. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of In The Company. I hope you've enjoyed listening and tucked away a few gems to bring to your working life. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to our channel. And if you've loved what you've heard today, please share it with your kinfolk who might also be in the need of some good company. And finally, if you feel so inclined, we'd be super grateful for a review on iTunes.